listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. My name's uh, Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, most mornings, Sunday mornings, I'm up at the South Campus, but uh, this morning I have the great privilege of uh, being over here and Clint being over at the South Campus, and so it's fun for me to, to get here. Uh, Adam, thanks for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, that was great. Matthew 5, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew 5. I was uh, talking with Mark this week, and um, we were just reminiscing, we were talking about the anniversary of the uh, the White House campus coming up, and just reminiscing about all the years that we've had here at Bethel, and how fun that it has been. So 15 years ago, in fact, where's is Paul Keel here? 15 years ago, Paul, uh, Leslie and I snuck into Tyler this weekend uh, and saw Bethel under under the cover of darkness. They didn't tell anybody we were here and uh, had a great opportunity to check Bethel out for the first time. And then a few months later, um, as the Lord would have it, we were called to come uh, to Bethel. So that was 15 years ago. And I think about that, I put that in context because as we think about this gospel that Matthew writes, Matthew's writing this probably around 15 years after Jesus ascends into heaven. So it's probably written somewhere around 48 or 50 AD. And like the passage of time for all of us, including Matthew, um, growth and time passing brings with it reflection. We hope it does anyways. And so that's what Matthew's doing. He's looking back over this 15 years of ministry and the beginning of the church. And as he writes this story of who Jesus is, you, you can feel the awe that Matthew has, even about things that as he reflects on it, he didn't fully understand when, this, when it first happened. In fact, he'll give us these parenthetical phrases throughout Matthew that say things like, and the, you know, the disciples didn't fully understand this at the time. You know, in 15 years, I'll tell you some things that have happened. I just saw my second child uh, graduate from college last weekend. My daughter, who could not walk when we moved here, just turned 16 this week. Discovered at the barbershop this week. All my hair is gray. It's terrible reality. As I read Matthew, and especially as I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7, what we call the, the Sermon on the Mount, what I find is I am uh, both more drawn to them and more shamed by them. 
more drawn to them, more drawn to this wisdom, more drawn to this teaching, more drawn to this this grand and beautiful picture that Jesus paints of the kingdom of God. And more shamed by it. Realizing what I so cannot live up to in my own strength. You know, one of the things you, you, you've got to realize is that when Matthew's writing this, he's writing it 15 years, 17 years after the ascension of Jesus. You really have, when you come to something like the Sermon on the Mount, you have two audiences. You have the audience that Jesus is, is there with on the Mount, that Jesus is teaching the, the, the people there in, in the moment. And he's, and he's teaching these people. This is before, this is the beginning of his ministry. It's before, you know, he's going to go to Jerusalem. It's before he's going to be arrested and, and uh, put on trial and crucified and lay in a tomb and be resurrected. It's before all of that. And Jesus is speaking to, to people, really announcing the kingdom of God, really announcing for the first time who he is. Well, then you have Matthew's audience that comes 15 years, 17 years, 18 years later. Uh, uh, an audience that, that is going to live in a time and a place after the resurrection. That's going to live in a time and a place after the gospel has been proclaimed. And Matthew is writing this for a people, for, for hearers, for readers that are maybe hearing about Jesus for the first time or hearing about Jesus in ways that clear up a lot of misconceptions. And so one of the questions you want to ask is, what's Matthew's strategy? Why is Matthew writing what he is, what he's writing? Why is he recording some 15 years later the words that Jesus said on a hillside? Some of that is Matthew wants his hearers to come to the place that we all come to when we read this scripture. And that is, man, I really like this. I'm really drawn to it. In fact, that's what all the people say when they're coming off the mountain. This is amazing. We've never heard anything like this. And at the same time, feel. But if that's what it is to be in the kingdom of God, then I don't really have any hope. I can never live up to that. And Matthew wants us over and over again to experience that so that when we finally get to the end and he finally tells us about the crucifixion of Jesus, that when we've been asking the question, we really like this, but how in the world can we ever achieve this? Matthew answers us with the gospel. Matthew answers us with the cross. In one way, it's to say you can't achieve this, but Jesus has done this for you. All that Jesus is, is the, the offer is all that Jesus is, you can become. Because all that you are, Jesus became. And that's what's going on in Matthew. See, there's a, there's a light in these chapters, particularly, and it draws Christians, but it's a light that oftentimes for us, it's so bright that it, that it sears us, it, it, it burns us, it, 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 it shames us. And what we realize is that there's no room here. When we read these things, there's no room here for a Christianity that's just, hey, we got to learn the right words to say. 
We got to listen to the right music. We got to look, you know, put together on a, on a Sunday morning. We realize when we read these verses, Christianity can't be pretended. It can't be mimicked. It can't be something that's feigned. It's not a club to join. In fact, let me say it this way. The church is a terrible social club. And it should be. It's a terrible social club. Now, it is a great place. Listen, lots of people, they come to the church and think, you know, I should, you know, we don't have any friends, or we want our children to be around good people, or, you know, we, we feel serious about, um, uh, you know, being married for, for 50 years. Like, we want to finish well. We want to see our kids love Jesus, or at least be around people who love Jesus. But ultimately... Coming here for our social or relational needs will not be enough. And it shouldn't be. You see, what this stirs inside of us is that Christianity is an all or nothing kind of thing. You're either in or you're out. There's no compromise. It, in some ways, it, it's, it, it, it would be repulsive to you if it's not. There has to be some place in you that says, you know, I really want to grow in Christ. And at the very least, whether I want it or not, I really want to want it. I really want to want to grow in Christ. That becomes the thing. That becomes the mystery underneath this gathering this morning. The mystery underneath our small groups. The mystery underneath our Bible studies is a desire of those that are, that are in, that want, or at least want to want, to grow in Christ. All right, well, look with me, Matthew chapter 5. I want to look at four verses this morning. That's all I get here at White House. I'm told 30 minutes and you're leaving, all right? So I'm going to do my very best to get it in. Here's what Jesus says as Matthew records it. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, it says this. You, 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 you are the salt of the earth. But, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, 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 you're the, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, help us to hear these words in a way that transforms us. That your word this morning would not return void. That it, was a, that it would accomplish what you have sent it to accomplish. And so, Father, the things I say that accord with your word 
Father, I pray we'd remember those. And everything else, I pray, would be burnt up before it even reaches our ears. We ask this the only way we can. The name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, Jesus is going to give us two metaphors. He's going to give us the metaphor of salt. So you're salt. This is, this is who you are and you're light. This is who you are. You're salt and you're light. And the first question is, why in the world does Jesus use salt as a metaphor? Well, the first answer to that is so, I, I think, so that they would never forget. Jesus is a master teacher. Everything he does, he's the best teacher that we ever come across in all of history. And most historians, even that aren't believers, would say the same thing. Jesus gives us the metaphor, the illustration of salt, because he never wants us to forget. Every time that the, that the hearers used salt, and they used it often, they would remember. They would remember. Every time they took salt... To put it on whatever it is they were going to put it on. They would remember the words of Jesus. See, the reality is that's what Christ cares about in our lives as believers. That there would be these things that trigger our memory all day long, every day of who we are and what he has done. And salt is just one of those things. The other reason is because of what salt does. You know, um, an ancient commentator, a guy named Origen, he's writing about, oh, 150 years or so after Matthew writes this. And he says in that time, so it's not very far away from the time, and certainly the culture would have been very much the same. Origen says, salt's useful for so many purposes in the human life. What need is there to speak of them? In other words, what Origen says, everybody knows what salt's for. It has so many uses. It's so pervasive in everything we do. And so I'll give you a couple of reasons, a couple of things of what salt does or what salt did, particularly at the time. Salt is a preservative. It preserves the meat from decaying into a stench. Keeps worms from living in that which was dead. It preserves it. Salt, it it made the difference between life and death when it came time for the hungry to eat. In fact, one writer, just as salt prevents or kills bacteria in food, the kingdom, the kingdom servant, the disciple, this is who Jesus is talking to. The, The disciple prevents or confronts corruption in the world. Notice that It is salt. It is the earth that needs the salt, not the kingdom of heaven. If the kingdom servant, the disciple, did not have a function to perform on earth according to God's plan, he might as well go straight to heaven upon conversion. The reality is that the earth needs the influence of Christ's church in this age. Salt preserves. Salt also seasons. Salt causes flavor to come alive. In fact... Job, the earliest writing in all of the scripture knows this. Job 6.6. 6. Can that which is tasteless be uh, eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? They knew that way back then. See, 
We're to be the flavor in the world. We're to, we're to give life. Christians are to, are to give to society this flavor, this tang, this, this zest. You know, bland life is one that's just going through the motions. Resigned that, you know, this is all there is. An interest only in tomorrow, not in forever. Where there's no thought of heaven or hell, no excitement, no thrill, tasteless lives, flavorlessness, that's where believers are supposed to step in. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you, know, you may know how to answer each person. talks about salt losing its flavor and truth is that's an impossibility this is not meant to be a chemistry lesson it's a wisdom saying there's wisdom here in fact the word flavor is also translated foolishness when it's contrasted with wisdom foolish person a foolish disciple we don't have any good influence we we're to be good influence we're to we're to cause things to come alive. Well, the third thing salt does is it penetrates. A pinch of salt and a gallon of water permeates the entire gallon of water. That's the way we're supposed to live. Now, when you read this, these verses, the first thing that comes to your mind is evangelism. And I know that when we bring up evangelism in the church, and that is where we actually would share our faith with other people, that makes us all uncomfortable. Rebecca Manley Pippert, she wrote this book called Out of the Salt Shaker into the World. She said it this way, Christians and non-Christians actually do have something in common. We're both uptight about evangelism. She also says this, when God is seeking a person, She's speaking to you. She's speaking to me. With all the fear we feel or all the inadequacy we feel. Or in that moment, all that we can see or all the things that we don't know. She says, when God's seeking a person, he will not allow my fear, my feeling of intimidation, or my lack of knowledge or experience to prevent that person from finding him. Evangelism's not the imposition of a point of view. It's the overflow of a thankful heart. Now, I don't know if you've had this. Have you ever met a person and you instantly conclude about this person, oh, listen, they'd never be interested in the gospel. Only to discover later maybe how wrong you were. If so, you're in good company. The, the disciples, they, they felt the same way. They crossed um, over into Samaria, uh, you, you know, as Jesus says, hey, th- we're going to go this way and we're going to go through Samaria. There's lots of protest of the disciples because the disciples believe there's nobody in Samaria that would want to hear anything it is that you have to say. Not only that, they show up, they find Jesus sitting at a well talking to a woman. And in their mind, this person qualified the least as far as interest into what Jesus would have to say. You know what happens in John chapter 4, which is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus meets this woman. 
And he simply asks her a few questions. Why are you doing what you're doing? What is it that you're looking for in what it is that you're doing? Simple questions that all of a sudden launch you into eternal conversations. Jesus meets a woman at the point of her needs. Why are you doing what you're doing? What are you hoping to get out of what you're doing and why you're doing it? Those questions lead to Jesus presenting her with an offer and an invitation like she'd never heard in her entire life. You know what this woman does? This woman who had come at the well, come to the well at the midday so she could hide from all of the people, she runs into town telling everyone she can find about Jesus, saying, he told me everything that I had ever done. Truth is, when you read the story, it's not that Jesus told her everything he'd ever done, she'd ever done. But all of a sudden, she was known. She was unfolded. In that moment, Jesus is teaching his disciples, listen, here are a couple of simple questions. Why are you doing what you're doing? What are you hoping to get out of what you're doing and why you're doing it? Those questions launch us into eternal conversations. Well, the last reason, I think, is because of how uh, salt, how common salt is. Not only does he want them to remember, not only are there many uses of salt, but salt is so common. In fact, it's one of the most common things. There's a guy named Mark Kurlansky, and he wrote this book, and it's amazing. The, the title of the book is called Salt, A History of the World. In your mind, as you look at the title of the book, you think this has got to be the most boring book in all that was ever written in all creation. And yet 500 pages later, you're thinking, I've never read anything so fascinating. As he goes through salt and all that it has meant in the history of the world. He says this salt is so common, so easy to obtain, so inexpensive that we've forgotten that from the beginning of civilization until about 100 years ago, salt was one of the most sought after commodities in human history. From prehistory until a century ago when the mysteries of salt were revealed by modern chemistry and geology, no one knew that salt was virtually everywhere. Let me hasten to say, he says, salt turns out to be far from boring. This unassuming chemical compound has profoundly influenced people's lives. Time and again, salt emerges as a pivotal player in the drama of human history, defining and structuring the relationships between the have-salts and the have-nots, and occasionally, occasionally even shaping the geography of whole nations. He argues that more significant than military might or wealth of any nation that has ever existed, salt has been the most important in determining who thrives and who doesn't. Spiritually, it's the same thing. There is something so common about salt and yet so important. And Jesus doesn't 
usher in his kingdom with military might or wealth of the world. He ushers it in with the most common, the seemingly most insignificant. That we're to sprinkle the entire world. Well, there's a contrast. Jesus is making this contrast between what he's talking about and what the religious leaders are talking about. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's one of the things people say is, we've never heard anything like this, and it's so different from anything the scribes have ever taught us. Jesus is is contrasting two ways of being human. And he starts with the Beatitudes. We've looked at it the last couple of weeks. All these Beatitudes, all these upside down, all these counterintuitive, all these things that seemingly don't make sense. This is what's blessed. This is what's prized. This, this is what life with Jesus as your king looks like. It's different than what the religious leaders were saying. They weren't salt. They didn't preserve. They corroded. They were bland. They despised what was common. That, that absolutely described the religious leaders of the day. And not only that, moving into the next metaphor of light, they weren't light. They were ones that snuffed light out. All they did was give the law to people, a burden that they distributed, a burden that they sold. They kept people in darkness. And this was the clash that Jesus had with them always. Well, look at the, the next bit and beginning in 14. It's, it's the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And then he says, a city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Why the light? Why does Jesus use this? Well, like light, like salt, has an effect on its environment. Light changes things. Light's common. It's a, it's a common metaphor used throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. That it's a prophecy of Jesus. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep you as a covenant for the people, for, for a light as a light for the nations. John opens up his gospel in him, meaning Jesus, and Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says in John 12, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Why the light? Light illuminates a path makes a destination visible. That's what we're to be as the church. That's what we're to be as believers. That light reveals things for what they are. 
light is conspicuous. That's why he says it's, it's like a city on a hill. It further illustrates if you ever go to Jerusalem, you, you go out there, you go up north to Galilee, you sit around the Sea of Galilee at night, and what you see is this image comes to life as the villages just shine in the darkness. These cities up on a hill. See, secret disciples are no use to the world. They're as much use to the world as a salt that's lost its distinctiveness. See, I think often Christians find ourselves too camouflaged in the world so as to go unnoticed. So I use this illustration specifically here camouflage because there's something i don't understand i understand desert camouflage mark you wear the brown and the white and it's got all the patterns so that when you're in the desert you can't be seen i understand the jungle camouflage and all of its various shades so i can hide in the woods and kill helpless and defenseless animals. Right? And that is what we do. All right. Here's the one I don't understand. Pink. What are we hiding from with the pink camouflage? I don't understand. I don't, you have pink, right, Mark? I don't understand it. We're camouflaged by the world too often. Here's a question for you. This is a pastoral This is what pastors do. I'm going to ask you, what camouflage do you wear? How are you camouflaged in the world? How do you, how do you sneak through Monday through Saturday virtually unnoticed as a believer to the world around you? What are you camouflaged in? There's a term that's used here in verse 16. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. And then it says, to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The term glory, or could be translated to give praise, means to make visible. To, to make something visible. It also means to to affect one's opinion about something, to, to influence them, to, to cause a change in or to produce a response in someone's opinion. See, the reality is us being light to the world, light is a benefit for others. And this is what actually makes it so satisfying. The impact that you have on another's life is exponentially more satisfying than all of those things that you're pursuing for yourself. Two months ago, March 2021, Journal of Psychology. Mills Tatova and Kenan Sheldon from the University of Missouri, they published a study, a research study, that they had been working on for years, and this is the title of the study. In fact, it's the title. The title of the study is the complete surprise to the is the result of the whole study. 
This is what they discovered to their complete surprise. The title of this research is called Happiness Comes from Trying to Make Others Feel Good Rather Than Oneself. This is what they spent years doing as academicians, and this is what they came to. They said, making others happy is more meaningful for people than just socializing with them or doing something to improve our own happiness. When we aim to make others happier, we feel connected to them or related. Our relatedness needs are better met, which is important for us. Here's what's nuts. And the researchers outlined this. They're surprised. They kept trying to figure out how, how this could be because it's so counterintuitive. It's, it's not natural. They, they did all of these other studies, these blind studies. They, they could not believe that this was the actual. Listen, it might not be natural, but it's not new. You. You're the salt of the earth. You are. You're you. You're the light of the world. See, if you're a believer today, this is already who you are. The, the encouragement is not to become a light. The encouragement is not to try to be salty. The emphasis of the encouragement is to stop hiding your light. Stop hiding who you are. Stop working so hard to not affect or influence the, the world around you because of who you are in Christ. Listen, be clear, we're not the source of the light. We reflect light in and to the world. And the good works, they're reflective in nature. They're meant to draw attention not to themselves, but rather divert or redirect or bend attention to another. So it might seem contradictory here where it says, you know, let your uh, light shine before others. Let your good works shine in such a way that give glory to your Father. You're going to get to chapter 6, and it opens up. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And you think, is Jesus saying two different things? Well, the truth is that the difference is, one, in one case, what it's meant is to draw attention to God. You, you are meant to draw attention to God with your life. In chapter 6, what he's referring to is how we draw attention to ourselves. What we do and how we do it is meant to draw attention to Christ. The commission is to live in such a way that we make God visible in a world that's blind to him. In other words, whose name are you making Whose name are you making big? Is it yours? At the end of the day, a success, how many likes or reposts or retweets or whatever it is you got? Are you working hard to build your brand? Whose name are you making big? Well, one final thing I want to show you, and we'll be done. I don't even know how long we've got. There's no clock here. There's no anything. I'm going to assume we've been going for 18 minutes, okay? <laughs> yeah, I heard, no. Uh, one last thing I want you to notice. Look at what Jesus says at the very end there in verse 16. He says, to give glory to, and then notice the phrase, 
your Father who is in heaven. Your Father who's in heaven. It's the first time in Matthew that Matthew records Jesus calling God Father. And it's this wonderful new emphasis on personal intimacy for the believer. In fact, Matthew's going to go on and end up using it 45 more times. While the fatherhood of God was not unknown in the Old Testament, here it gets endowed with this very personal sense. The king, Jesus, the king, he wants to know, he wants people to know that his kingdom is deeply personal. It is a is a deeply personal relationship with God. And here's what would have sounded so different to the hearers that Jesus speaks to. By the time of the first century, the idea of God as the father of Israel, that's well established. That's how people used it. But Jesus presses in here and in other teachings and in this saying, he presses in on the saying because he wants us to know he's not just the father of Israel, this is true, but this means more. It is staggering. There is a staggering intimacy that he wants us to realize about our standing before God. You see, here's what makes this so staggering because those that were gathered on the mountain there to hear Jesus teaching. There's no other word to describe them than nobodies as far as the world's concerned. Even as far as the religious leaders were concerned. Jesus is addressing the nobodies. Jesus is ennobling the nobodies. He is here bestowing honor on those hearers who have lived their lives just hoping to avoid shame. And he says, you, you, you're salt of the earth. You, you're the light of the world. Jesus is speaking about the impact of people who are of the eternal kingdom. And let me just say this. If you're here this morning, you're a believer, you're of the eternal kingdom. Their impact on the whole world, the entire world, nobodies whose names will largely go unknown. Names that will be quickly forgotten by history. Jesus says you'll be remembered and honored for all eternity. Likely unknown by more than a few in their lifetime. Yet eternity will reveal that they changed the course of history. This is the promise. This is the reality for those who are of the kingdom. Your impact in this world is not measured in your lifetime. It is measured in eternity. This is why Jesus at the very end of Matthew's gospel says to the disciples these famous words, these words that are so etched on our hearts if we grew up in the church. It's the great commission. He says at the very end, he says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and therefore make disciples of all nations. He's on a mountain with a 
handful of nobodies. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And we will read that and we might mistakenly think, you know what, these were pretty, these were, these 11 guys who were there on the mountain, they're pretty special guys. I mean, they'd walked with Jesus for three years. Of course, they're guys who ended up changing the world. Do you realize that within 300, 300 years from this moment, there's hardly anyone in the world that doesn't know about Christianity because of them? And it's easy for you and for I to sit there and go, well, of course, these were 11 guys. They were superheroes. They were like the original superheroes in the church, right? Like before Marvel, before DC, you got Matthew. Of course, these guys did that. See, here's the problem is we always read these verses, but we forget what the context is. We forget how Matthew describes the disciples that what Matthew's last words about the disciples are not the last words we would ever think just before this now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them and when they saw him they worshipped him And they doubted. And the very last word about the disciples in Matthew's gospel, as he reflects 15 years later, as time has happened, as maturity has happened, and as he looks back, what he remembers about the disciples in that moment was not how great they were, but how they doubted. And in fact, Matthew himself was there on their knees face down on the ground worshiping Jesus yet doubt filling their hearts was it doubt in who Jesus was probably not it probably had more to do with the doubt in themselves who are we if Jesus leaves how in the world does this continue how does this keep going on you have men there that are marked by shame, that are marked by regret, that are marked by betrayal. Men who, when they looked at who Jesus was, they realized we could never live up to that. And yet what Matthew wants us to know is Jesus says, I'm with you always. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to, given to me, and nowhere will you ever go as long as you breathe air in this life will I not be with you because you're the salt of the whole earth you're the light of the whole world you don't have to leave here this morning intimidated faltering insecure feeling awkward you can leave here just like the disciples left here in whatever state you are as long as you'll walk out of that door believing and what Jesus has done, and that he's with you always to the end of the earth. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. 
simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.